So today I'm talking about Marlowe's Dr. Faustus, the story of a scholar who enters into a pact with the devil via his agent Mephistopheles and is punished with the torments of hell after a period of 24 years capering around the world. What I want to try to do is to think about this play in the cultural context of early modern religion and in a dramaturgical context about the development of tragedy. Okay, so religion on the one hand, a kind of cultural background, if you like, and a formal or um, literary kind of context on the other, the development of tragedy. And I want, if I can, to introduce something about the instability of all texts in this period, particularly play texts, questions of kind of textual criticism on what kind of editions we need to use, and what the issues, particular issues and questions are with this play, with which everybody, all of us, you as readers, uh, editors, theatre practitioners, all need to struggle to think about what's the text of Dr Faustus, is there a single text, given that there are two strongly related but distinct editions published during the early 17th century. I'm going to talk more about that. Okay, so let's start though with religion. And in this section I'm going to try and give uh, a sort of potted account of the cultural significance of, re of religion rather than in some ways its theological significance. And I'm doing that because most of you, but also most people in the 1590s, were not theologians. This was not their professional concern. Uh, they had a kind of cultural understanding of religion which was different perhaps from a, uh, a distinctly uh, theological one. And I want to start with religion since a play in which an early modern university scholar uses magic to conjure the devil, signs a pact in blood with him for the price of his soul, makes fun of the Pope under a kind of invisibility cloak, and eventually tumbles into hell's torments. This is a play which might reasonably be thought to have religion at its heart. And that's actually both the ethical and philosophical questions of religion, the nature of free will, what is sin, what happens to us after we die. So we might call that a kind of philosophy that all religions are interested in. But also, this is a play interested in the temporal institutions of religion in the aftermath of the Reformation, church politics, essentially, <coughs> in the late 16th century. It's, obvious, it's a really obvious thing to say, but it's worth saying that uh, religion in this period is not about individual conscience, it's about politics. Religion in early modern England is deeply politicised, and our own modern sense of a kind of um, uh, freedom of conscience, religious freedom of conscience, is really quite an alien concept uh, in the late 16th century. Now, much of the criticism on Dr Faustus has been really concerned to try and stabilise the play's religious or epistemological universe. It's been trying to say, what's the religious stance of this play, singular, uh, and how can we pinpoint that? So criti critics have tried to make Dr Faustus speak continuously to a particular doctrinal agenda. Uh, and there's a, there's a real range of uh, agendas that that's worked for. You'll find a range of articles and book chapters which variously discuss Faustus alongside Lutheran, Calvinist, Catholic theologies, uh, as the inheritor of the writings of Augustine or of Aristotle, as a version of atheist, humanist, hermetic, astrological, Gnostic, or any other, any number of philosophies and narratives about human existence in the cosmos. So the point there is not what all of them are, but that there are so many. 
So these are all readings which are attempting to impose a kind of master narrative on the play. And that's a general critical procedure uh, in the sort of middle and uh, middle part of the 20th century to try and understand what's the key which will make this spring open. What's the master narrative that we can use to understand this text, uh, Dr. Faustus in our case, but probably pretty much anyone. What we might reasonably argue, though, is that any text that can produce such a range of critical readings, by definition, shouldn't be reduced to any one of them. Okay, so if such a number of readings are possible, uh, making your reading the dominant, the kind of top dog, uh, really can't be the right, quite the right response. And contemporary criticism is much more interested in Dr. Faustus as a kind of palimpsest, a uh, useful critical term, uh, as you'll know, uh, meaning the, the kind of overwriting, the simultaneous layering uh, of different sensibilities or different attitudes. And Faustus is a palimpsest, perhaps, in that it contains, uh, consciously or not, a range of differently nuanced belief systems. And this makes the play a really significant cultural document of its own moment in the early 1590s, and also then a useful metaphor or a symbol or a kind of focusing lens for broader questions about religious and literary culture. A decade before Marlowe wrote, one writer had reviewed the confusing recent religious landscape. In one man's memory, we have had to our prince a man who abolished the Pope's authority by his laws and yet in other points kept the faith of his fathers. We have had a child who by his like laws abolished together with the papacy the whole ancient religion. We have had a woman who restored both again and sharply punished Protestants. And lastly, her majesty that now is, who by the like laws hath long since abolished both again and now severely punisheth Catholics as the other did Protestants, and all these strange differences within the compass of about 30 years. It's not just to us that this looks like a kind of whirlwind, that's to say, uh, of religious back and forth. Reviewing the Tudor dynasty, the reigns of Henry VIII, the man who abolishes the Pope's authority and yet keeps the rest of the Catholic faith intact. Uh, his son, Edward VI, who turns towards Protestantism and towards a reformed religion. Edward's half-sister, Mary I, a Catholic, and then Her Majesty that now is, Queen Elizabeth, Protestant. Um, these are all identified as strange differences. The tone is detached, but perhaps bewildered. In fact, the writer is William Allen, a Catholic apologist who's probably wanting to encourage that we're about to see another change now. Her Majesty that now is, perhaps, is a slightly threatening uh, phrase. Religious change in the Elizabethan period in the 16th century produced, paradoxically, both religious pluralism and polarisation. There were fundamentalists in religion then as now. There were professional and amateur theologians who kept up with and participated in debates about doctrine. But there were a majority of people who lived with the compromises and the overlays of the Elizabethan settlement. As the critic Christine Poole puts it of Dr. Faustus, the play lies at a cultural and theological nexus where residual modes of Catholicism intersected and combined with merging concepts of Protestantism. So the play is at a cultural and theological nexus which, in which Catholicism and Protestantism meet. 
Let's look for a few minutes at that proposition in a bit more detail. And if nothing else, this may help focus your attention on what are the ideological uh, issues and debates of the controversies of the Reformation. And we're also trying to see how uh, issues that may look to us theological have a much wider cultural purchase. First, I'm going to talk about the question of purgatory and, relatedly, of free will. The existence or not of purgatory, a liminal post-mortem transit lounge where the dead stayed for some period of time, was a major doctrinal difference between the old religion and the new. Under the purgatorial system of medieval Catholicism, it was believed that the dead entered purgatory to be tortured and purged of their sin. So, rationally, how long that took depended on how sinful they had been, but also on how hard the living worked on their behalf. Prayers for the dead, by the living, could mitigate the sentence of purgatory. And furthermore, the sale of indulgences, a kind of credit note to set against a certain amount of sin, was a significant part of Catholic Church economics, both financial and spiritual. So to some extent, the fate of the soul after death in this purgatorial model was subject to a certain amount of human agency and free will. You had the freedom to commit more or fewer sins in the first place, and you had the freedom to take ameliorative actions, including investing in indulgences or praying for the dead. Purgatory, therefore, was dependent on your behaviour in life, the so-called doctrine of good works. When Everyman, the central protagonist of the anonymous late medieval play of the same name, it's a play we're going to come back to because it establishes uh, the medieval coordinates against which Marlowe is rebelling to some extent, I think, in Dr. Faustus. When every man in that play looks for spiritual allies as he approaches his death, good deeds, personified, is the only one who is up to the task. Everybody else abandons him. So good deeds uh, in that sort of late medieval piety is the thing that brings you salvation. Now, the revolutionary element of Lutheran Protestantism, Dr. Faustus is prominently set in Wittenberg, a place which echoes with Lutheran associations. It was the place where Luther pinned up the 39 articles on the door of the church. The revolutionary element of Lutheran Protestantism was to suggest that salvation was not a matter of good works, but of faith alone. So good works versus faith alone is one quite handy binary for... Uh, Catholic-Protestant differences, um, even though uh, binaries are difficult in this field. So, in pr Protestant thought, heaven's turnstile operated according to the grace of God and to the faith of the individual in that grace. There was to be no negotiation, no loyalty card, and, importantly, for rituals around death that I discussed in the lecture on the Spanish tragedy, there was no role for the living in helping their loved ones to minimise their suffering in purgatory. That causes uh, what some critics have called the kind of crisis about death uh, and about what you do for the living. It may be, as I suggest in the Spanish tragedy, it may be what gives us revenge as an alternative uh, response. So prayers for the dead were no longer part of Protestant liturgy, the liturgy um, 
recorded in the Book of Common Prayer. The dead were deemed philosophically unreachable. Now, that issue of free will in Dr. Faustus is a crucial one. Does Faustus damn himself? Does he actively, even proactively, choose a path that forks away from God and towards the devil? Or is he somehow drawn ineluctably along that path by forces outside of himself? And is it better or worse to sin uh, kind of uh, intentionally or unintentionally? Does Faustus live in a Protestant world of human agency or a Catholic world of human frailty? Now, we're going to keep those questions in mind as we go through the play, but what's important to remember is that these are questions the play keeps asking, not answering. Sometimes acknowledging how a work asks questions is more important than the work for us critics trying to answer them. So I've got one more religious variant within Protestantism to outline, and that's Calvinism. Calvin's view of predestination stated that the number who would be saved at the day of judgment was already known to God. This cohort were known as the elect. Nothing would change that. So you can see from that that predestination, Calvinist predestination, is pretty much the opposite of purgatorial Catholicism. In predestination, as the name suggests, there's really nothing for humans to do but wait for the revelation of divine judgment. But because Calvinism was so unyielding a philosophy, it was actually rather a difficult sell. If the elect are already chosen, what's the point of living a moral life? What's the point of foregoing sins uh, on earth if it's not going to make any difference to what happens after death? So later theologians developed Calvinism back towards a new, this time Protestant emphasis on good deeds in order to counteract that unintended consequence that by dismantling human agency, Calvinism seemed uh, to kind of undo any incentive to behave well. As Marlowe himself was alleged to have said, according to the deposition of the government informer Richard Baines, who drew up a list of Marlowe's thought crimes in 1593, the first (coughs) beginning of religion was only to keep men in awe. The first beginning of religion was only to keep men in awe. Religion, as contemporaries understood, has a social role in regulating human behaviour, and thus Calvinism's apparent disinterest in human morality needed to be amended in order to incentivise good behaviour. Now, you can probably see certain elements from all these doctrines at different moments in Dr Faustus. Let's focus on one in particular. One of the interpretive consequences of this religious and ideological overlap in the play is a confusion about its tipping point, the point that tragic theory might call peripatia. At what point does the play settle into inevitability? When is it all decided? It's a question that's come to be asked about all tragedies. Is there a point at which uh, the the, the path forks and one, one, um, one way is taken rather than the other? But in this play that dallies so explicitly with the notion of heavenly forgiveness, it's absolutely fundamental. What does Faustus do that makes it impossible for him to row back from damnation? And what are the consequences of this interpretation 
for ideas of divine forgiveness. Now, critics, as you will read, have been curiously interested to pinpoint the moment of Faustus's damnation, almost as if it's a kind of prophylactic for all of us, particularly those of us who are involved in scholarship, to understand what it is that would just be absolutely take us beyond the pale. Is it the signing of the pact in his own blood with Mephistopheles? Is it, as more prurient or misogynistic readings sometimes assert, the terrible kiss with the Helen of Troy succubus? What role are played by the good and bad angels? Can Faustus repent? If not, is that because of free will, he won't repent, or because he has crossed the line of repentance and done something unforgivable? Now, in many ways, these questions collide in his famous last soliloquy as the clock speeds towards midnight on the last day of his life. The speech begins with the clock striking 11 and with Faustus's recognition, now hast thou but one bare hour to live. It's a very interesting phenomenon I'm not going to talk about in Faustus where he talks about himself in the third person a lot. Quite a lot of Marlowe's characters do that. It's something quite interesting about characterisation, being inside and outside yourself at the same time. So, as Faustus debates the question of his own salvation or damnation, we hear the clock strike the half hour after about 30 lines. Fifteen lines later, midnight strikes. So time speeds up inexorably as Faustus, panic-stricken, reviews his position. A stage direction reads, Thunder, enter the devils. And Faustus's last terrified lines are, O mercy heaven, look not so fierce on me. Adders and serpents, let me breathe a while. Ugly hell, gape not. Come not, Lucifer. I'll burn my books, O Mephistopheles. Now, medieval and folkloric stories in which humans enter pacts with the devil, interestingly, usually end with the devil being outwitted by the cleverness of their human victim. The devil is usually outwitted on a point of law or on some literalism uh, in the bargain. In these story types, the devil exits cursing like an infernal dick dastardly drat and double drat. These are cultural fictions which obviously <coughs> rob the devil of his power. But that narrative expectation that the devil can and will be defeated may have given a rather different cast to Faustus's last speech in the early modern period. Most modern critics approach the play as if in some way Faustus's fate is already clearly understood to be sealed, albeit as we've seen that the precise point at which that certainty occurred is rather less clear. So in these readings, the last speech is simply the accompaniment of his progress into hell. It's a kind of operatic aria when everything's done and dusted, but it ain't over till the damned scholar sings. But at least some of the expectations of the audiences might, uh, sorry, at least some of the audiences might expect either that Faustus might be able to escape the bond <coughs> by his own ingenuity, it's established as a clever guy after all, or perhaps that we might get divine intervention. And if you approach the speech with either of those possibilities anywhere in your mind, it runs rather differently. Anxiety, real anxiety, real engagement from the audience as time speeds up. The scholars tell Faustus to call on God and his sense that it's already too late may work as a kind of dramatic irony. When Faustus cries in that final speech, oh, I'll leap up to heaven, one drop of blood will save me, O oh my Christ, rend not my heart for naming of my Christ, yet will I call on him. 
Why is there no answer? Did we already know there wouldn't be? Are any of us now, or in the audience then, sufficiently theologically authoritative to judge that Faustus makes an authentic statement of faith or request for forgiveness or not? Might people be expecting the long-delayed, much-anticipated, and in the event, never seen, that starring role of the play, God, the ultimate deus ex machina who ought to be coming to set everything right at the end, but never does? I was wondering whether the end of the play mightn't draw on the dramatic technique we already know from modern cinema as the bomb-diffusing countdown. Managing the excitement of a seemingly impossible task, <coughs> cutting between the inexorable clock ticking down uh, and the clever um, uh, whoever uh, making it stop. With a second to spare in this familiar trope, the countdown stops, the explosion is avoided, annihilation is deferred. Then, of course, if you're James Bond, you eject from that weird mountain full of um, people in weird uniforms <coughs> in a Union Jack parachute carrying a minimally clad woman and hope you're not rescued too quickly. If you're Dr Faustus, you probably go back to the library, stopping only to throw a last custard pie at the Pope. <laughs> now, the parallel may seem a frivolous one, but the dramaturgy of Faustus's last speech, which cuts between the, in the increasing speed of the sound effects of the clock and his running through his own intellectual and spiritual resources to try to get out of this impossibly doomed situation, the alternate slowing down of, its of time and its speeding up. This is a very recognisable technique. But the point, of course, about James Bond is we know that he will win, however close to the wire it gets. Or, if you prefer a more early modern analogue, we might look again at that 15th century play, Everyman. This play begins with Everyman being summoned by death, and the play is all about how his sinful friends, <coughs> fellowship, goods and kindred, all abandon him as he makes the lonely journey to the grave. Every man comes to realise that confession, good deeds and knowledge are his only true companions. He's accompanied into the grave by knowledge and together they ascend to heaven where an angel greets them. Now the soul is taken, the body fro, thy reckoning is crystal clear. Now shalt thou into the heavenly sphere unto the which all ye shall come that liveth well before the day of doom. Okay, so it works out okay, that's the point. Every man dies, to be sure, but his death is a good death. It sends him to heaven. The play is part of the medieval tradition known as the Ars Moriendi, the art of dying, the Ars Moriendi. Every man has succeeded in the quest that structures the play. So succeeding there is not, not dying, but dying well. As I've suggested, Faustus is obviously based on this play in lots of ways. But enough here to emphasise that point. Uh, every man ends well. It's a comedy, even though every man dies. Every man finds the loyal friends and enters God's mercy. So if we were to approach Dr Faustus through either of these lenses, a modern one via James Bond, a late medieval one via every man, the play's manipulation of our expectations at the end is, is dramatically powerful, but ambiguous. Is the point about Faustus that we know he cannot win, he cannot escape the bond? Or is his last speech more dynamic, more contingent than merely running through what's already th theatrically predestined? At this point, I want to bring in another confusion or multiplicity about Dr. Faustus, the nature of the text to which we might be referring. Let's try and set out a timeline here. 
Dr. Faustus was probably written in 15, between 1588 and 1519. There are performance records between 1594 and 7 by the Admiral's men at the Rose Theatre. Edward Allain played Faustus. Marlowe, of course, is killed in a fight or by some accounts assassinated for his involvement in espionage in 1593. We know that Dr. Faustus, uh, like other Marlowe plays, is a popular one and that it's one of the early plays to go on European tour in the first years of the 17th century. In 1602, it was revived at the Rose. Philip Henslow, the theatrical entrepreneur, paid two men, William Byrd and Samuel Rowley, for additions to pep the play up for new audiences. So 1602, a payment to Byrd and Rowley for additions to Dr. Faustus. They're paid four pounds, which suggests more than just a quick brush up, more substantial additions or rewrites. In 1604, Dr. Faustus is printed for the first time. It's reprinted in 1609 and in 1611. Now in 1616, a second version of the text, longer, different in many aspects, and bearing a newly commissioned woodcut of the Magus standing in a magic pentangle in his study on the title page, appeared, 1616. Bibliography has tended to call the 1604 edition the A text and the 1616 the B text. Now, there are problems with that. There's hardly any context from A-level grades to sports teams to hepatitis in which you would prefer B over A. So these designations easily assume evaluative. They don't just, they're not just neutral descriptive terms, they're evaluative terms. A is better than B. <coughs> but it's a standard procedure, so I'm going to talk about them as A and B, but I think that's worth uh, bearing in mind. I think where we are right now with editing and with our concept of early modern playtexts is that any account of Dr. Faustus, <coughs> including yours, needs to be clear which of the two plays it's talking about or how they're different at crucial times. The Oxford World Classics edition edited by uh, Bevington and Rasmussen or the same editor's New Mermaids editions or the Perseus online project all print both. Okay, so this textual situation is uh, complex and like the religious one is not actually going to be cut through uh, in an easy way. Even the A text, the earlier one, published, as you remember, in 1604, post-dates its author's death by more than a decade. It carries a topical uh, reference to Dr. Lopez, a doctor who was found guilty of plotting against Queen Elizabeth in 1594 after Marlowe had died. So he can't have written that bit. It can't be the text, that's to say, exactly as Marlowe wrote it. Now, authorial control <coughs> over play scripts was probably much less tight than we tend, for ideological and convenience reasons, to assume. We tend to assume that plays are written by authors. We're not very good at dealing with anonymous plays because we still have, haven't got leverage to think about them. We, st we haven't tended to be very good about collaboration as a form of, uh, of play production. But the script in the early modern period has value in the playhouse economy because it is the blueprint for a successful performance and therefore it's a source of future income not because it preserves the mighty lines of Marlowe or any other writer. Okay, so the author is just one function, I think, in 
uh, the, the, the whole industry which is going to put on a successful play. The second important point is that though the B text, the 1616 texts, has additional <coughs> material, and therefore it's logical to assume that it's the text that Bird and Rowley were paid £4 for 12 years earlier, we don't know that for sure. Their names are never associated with the play in print. And again, that tells us something about how the theatre industry works. There are any number of anonymous script doctors and play patchers working in the background of many of the plays we want to identify to a singular author. The playwright Thomas Haywood boasted that he had either an entire hand or at least a main finger in 220 plays. So an entire hand or a main finger, that's Thomas Haywood in 220 plays. We, know, we might know about 10% of that uh, if it's true. The work rate here is journalistic. I mean, that to be a descriptive uh, idea about um, deadline-driven writing, not an evaluative one, rather than poetic, likewise. So the textual authority of each of the versions, the A and the B text, is uncertain. But as I've said, the question of authenticity is a bit like the question of relig religion. It's hard work to make the textual multiplicity into a simple, simple preference for one or the other, just as it's hard work to clarify the player's religious politics. In both cases, I think what's most interesting to us at this point is Dr. Faustus's disturbing multiplicity. Now, one thing the B text, if we take the B text to be a revision of the earlier play script, one thing the B text might give us, usefully, and that's what I want to pursue for a minute, might give us is a kind of commentary on how people received the earlier version of the play. That's to say, if you were given the job of rewriting something, you'd probably update it and take out anything which looked very 90s, which is probably what Bird and Rowley do. But you might also amplify or repeat things that had gone well, clarify or cut it in places where it seemed to lag. Maybe you'd uh, work around some new skills you might have in your acting troupe, for instance, or in your theatre. But... Collectively, then, those alterations would say something about the difference between um, uh, the, um, the moment of the first text and the moment of the second. And there are three things about the B text that might help us think about that question of early modern reception of Dr. Faustus. One is the role of comedy and slapstick. The second is the place of spectacle and of stage effects. And the third is the question that we're actually still on, if you've been following this lecture, the end of the play, Dr. James Bond Faustus diffusing the devil's pack bomb, or is he already doomed? The, the B-text has a different dramaturgy around the very end of the play, and that speaks to and makes visible for us that notion of the palimpsest, the religious palimpsest that I discussed earlier. Okay, so firstly then I'm going to think about comedy in the play. Both versions of Dr. Faustus have a good deal of comedy, but the modern performance history of the play, such as it is, shows that we now found it extremely difficult to reconcile the serious business of hell and damnation with the notion of comedy. Reviewing a production at Shakespeare's Globe in 2011, the theatre critic Charles Spencer spoke for this general view. The trouble is that the scary stuff in which Faustus sells his soul and ends up being dragged into the gates of hell is mixed with endless farcical scenes involving low-life characters and, indeed, Faustus himself, engaged in no end of tedious practical jokes and cross-talk routines. 
If you thought Shakespeare's clowns were unfunny, try Marlowe's, note Spencer, ruefully. Most modern productions share this view and cut Faustus's comedy. Just as most critical assessments of the play major on its serious existential coordinates and tactfully ignore the bits where the horse courses leg falls off by magic and the Pope gets food thrown at him. But the B-Tax does exactly the opposite. It adds more of this material. Presumably, that's what audiences enjoyed. And it's, it won't quite do, I think, now to feel that that's regrettable, that audiences somehow uh, were, uh, you know, let themselves down and let down their highly intelligent playwrights by asking for uh, slapstick. I think there's something more sophisticated uh, about what we enjoy than that. Our only contemporary critical manoeuvre for understanding the role of comedy in a serious genre like tragedy is as comic relief. Surely a term and a way of thinking in desperate need of, re of redoing, of, of, of rejigging, of, of rethinking from the, from the ground up. We need perhaps to be, more, to open, to be open to a more thoroughgoingly sceptical view about the tone of Faustus's adventures. In the first place, are we supposed to take Faustus all that seriously? It's Faustus, a scholar at Wittenberg, really a modern everyman for audiences at the beginning of the 1590s. Is he a more sophisticated, is he, sorry, is he, is he a more specifically high status and rather distant figure? Comedy theorists distinguish between laughing at and laughing with. The first is a relation of power, laughing at. Laughing with is a relation of empathy. Might audiences less privileged than Faustus himself have felt superior and distant to Faustus, laughing at him, because his was a fate that they were very unlikely to share? probably quite unlikely they were going to get bored of the uh, extent of Western philosophy and enter into a pact with the devil. Maybe they were superior and distant to Faustus then, rather than, as tragedy tends to assume, empathetic towards him. Perhaps his exploits were a kind of Bullingdon Club sorcery, the product of not enough to do and too much money, rather than that, <laughs> rather than that more everyman sense of shared human frailty. My audience sympathy, in fact, be closer to the servants whose plots parody and undermine the central one. Does the humour undermine the play's pretensions to high seriousness? And maybe that's an ethical as well as a dramaturgical point. Taking things seriously, including necromancy, does Faustus no good after all. It's better in this play world to play about with magic rather than sign up wholeheartedly to its seductive charms. So thinking seriously about the tone of the play and being willing to rethink our automatic assumption that the comic scenes are regrettable diversions from the main plot, I think is important in thinking through the relationship between the two texts. Secondly, I want to think briefly about the role of spectacle. The B text has a more obviously spectacular dramaturgy than the A. In some ways, that registers uh, a difference in what theatre was doing between... Um, the early, very early 1590s when Marlowe writes the play and when the play is per first put on uh, and the beginning of the 17th century when it's being revised. But it, broadly speaking, we move to a, a, theatrical, a theatrical economy which is much more interested in visual than it previously was. Okay, so when we say um, that these was, this uh, was a theatre with a bare stage you know, and everything was done verbally, that's probably true only of the er really early theatre um, increasingly what audiences want is stuff to see, uh, costumes, special effects, 
stage work of different kinds. And that's registered, I think, in the difference between these two texts. Just as the woodcut on the 1616 edition emphasises stuff, books, astrolabes, devils, so the later text takes up developments in stagecraft to present a more active stage. We get a severed head, for instance, as part of the comedy we've just been discussing. Now, the phenomenology of stage objects, really interesting area of study, is, is, is really interesting also in relation to Faustus. Are stage objects real items or quoted performed items? It's like the question of whether you can quote magic on the stage or by saying it uh, in, in the theories of po uh, performative language. You've already enacted it. And how might the Admiral's Men's list of props, which included one hellmouth for Faustus, combine verisimilitude with enjoyment. We all enjoy special effects, even though they're almost always used to show us fighting and death. Now, the A and B texts, different use of spectacle, connects closely with the third point, the difference in religious tone between the two texts. So I'm going to uh, squash them together to think again about the play's final scenes and the management of its ending. The B text has a new sequence of about 50 lines immediately before Faustus's last clock-punctuated speech that I've already discussed. In the A text, Faustus bids his fellow scholars farewell. The clock strikes. He begins that terrified final soliloquy. But in between the farewell of the scholars and that last speech in the B text is a whole new scene in which Mephistopheles and the good angel and the bad enter. The purpose of this scene, the purpose of bringing them in serially, seems to be to tell Faustus, and by extension the audience, that it's now too late to repent. Mephistopheles tells Faustus, now thou hast no hope of heaven, therefore despair. Now thou hast no hope of heaven, therefore despair. And he also delivers a speech, which we don't get anywhere in the A texts, that suggests that Faustus never really had any chance, any free will, in his own damnation. This is Mephistopheles in the B text. Twas I that when thou wert in a way to heaven, damned up thy passage. When thou tookst the book to view the scriptures, then I turned the leaves and led thine eye. What weeps thou? Tis too late. Tis too late. So the speech seemed designed to prepare us for the fact that this cannot now turn, well, turn out well. Too late, the message is clear. In case you were wondering, the Manichaean struggle for Faustus's soul is over. God has conceded. The good and bad angels come in to consolidate and corroborate this fact. Their repeated messages, it's all over, it's too late. It's late in the day, nearly 12 o'clock. It's late in the 24 years of life that were part of Faustus's bargain. It's late in the play, nearly time to go home. And it's late, much too late, in the timescale of repentance. And if you want an example, I think, of how a play fits itself to the time that's available for it on the stage, the unique thing about plays is that they happen in real time. That's something which we hardly get in any other literary genre. They've got a, they've got a time aspect which can't be gainsaid. I think Faustus is a really brilliant example. The good angel tells Faustus he could have had innumerable joys had he but listened to virtue, but now he has lost celestial happiness. In an example of the new technology now available, probably in the Fortune Theatre, where the expanded play was performed, a celestial throne 
descends from above the stage and then is snatched from Faustus and instead a hell is discovered. Okay, so the, state, the, the, the end of the B text uses uh, the kind of above stage area and the below stage area to give a kind of topography of possible salvation, no um, inevitable damnation. There could hardly be a clearer statement of intent at the end. The heavenly throne that's winched down from above the stage is empty. There's no God in this machine, no deus ex machina. Instead, the jaws of hell are open to receive thee. The bad angel points to the hell mouth and encourages Faustus to look into that vast perpetual torture house. There are the furies, tossing damned souls on burning forks, their bodies boiling lead. There are live quarters broiling on the coals that ne'er can die. The good and bad angel in the B-text leave Faustus alone, telling him this is all he can look forward to. Then the clock strikes eleven. Now, the effect of this interpolation is to clarify and preempt some of those questions we've already had about the outcome of Faustus's final speech. In the B-text, it's already now clear from both infernal and celestial authorities that the time for repentance is over. It's one thing the good and bad angels agree on. It's too late. The play is coming to an end. That end is damnation. The added sequence confirms that Mephistopheles has controlled Faustus throughout and makes it clear that the, th the possibility for things to go well is over. It introduces a kind of religious clarity, that's to say, that was previously absent. And perhaps we might extrapolate from the work that new passage is doing that some early viewers of Faustus did indeed expect that he might be delivered from his fate. Perhaps they felt disappointed or cheated or shocked with an ending in which no divine forgiveness or human cleverness intervenes to save him or ameliorate his doom. In introducing this clarity, of course, the B-text also adds more confusions. Earlier in the play, in both versions, immediately after signing in blood the deed of gift of body and soul to Lucifer, Faustus asks Mephistopheles for some of the new forbidden knowledge he has so dearly bought. Tell me, where is that place men call hell? Mephistopheles' answer is chilling. <coughs> Hell hath no limits, nor is circumscribed in one self-place, for where we are is hell, and where hell is must we ever be. Hell hath no limits, nor is circumscribed in one self-place, for where we are is hell, and where hell is must we ever be. Faustus' answer is hipster modern. Come, I think hell's a fable. But in the B-text, neither of them is right. In place of that delicately, devastatingly existential view of hell as everywhere outside the grace of God, and in place of Faustus's fashionable scepticism, the B-text gives us an old-fashioned medieval view of the hot torture chamber under the earth, complete with all the visual tropes of the infernal bonfire known from church decoration. Google Hellmouth Church if you want some examples of this very, very widespread medieval iconography. So the addition in the B-text seems designed emphatically to close down the possibility of salvation. That may suggest that before, in the A-text, it existed. Perhaps viewers of that text, the A-text, felt cheated that their hope of last-minute deliverance was so completely frustrated. So I focused on the ending of Dr. Faustus because this is a very strongly teleological play. 
teleological in that it's working towards its ending. And I want to finish with some observations on the significance of that teleology for the question of tragedy. Now, tragedy is, of course, a deeply teleological genre in the hands of Elizabethan dramatists, a deeply uh, end-directed and end-stopped genre, unlike perhaps the ongoing or more serial structure of Greek tragedy, where tragedies carry on from each other um, in uh, kind of family or uh, serial structures. That's something we don't really get in the early modern theatre. Tragedies come to a stop and there's no future uh, even, even a future of more misery isn't available. Tragedies, we might think, are structured around the impossibility of a sequel. That's why things like Hamlet 2 or something are just so self-evidently <coughs> funny. So this is a play all heading towards the ending. And Marlowe gives us the speech of Faustus uh, that I've been talking about so much this morning as a high-point conclusion. But in the prologue to this play we get an image that somehow suggests that this was all already written. Faustus, we're told, in the play's opening moments, worked hard in Cambridge, acquiring learning in heavenly matters of theology. Uh, he is actually not in Cambridge, he's in Wittenberg, but the language of what, how university works is, draws on Cambridge terms, um, particularly the idea of grace, which has a particular... Um, uh, academic use in Cambridge where Marlowe himself was. So Faustus works hard acquiring learning in heavenly matters of theology and then till swollen with cunning of a self-conceit his waxen wings did mount above his reach and melting heavens conspired his overthrow. So his waxen wings did mount above his reach. The image of course is of Icarus who flew too close to the sun on wings attached by wax. Now, the early modern reception of the Icarus prototype summarises and anticipates some of the debates about Faustus himself. Was it great for Icarus to have tried to fly, or was he wicked to transgress human limitations? Early modern Icaruses are sometimes admirable and sometimes cautionary. They're sometimes modern men pushing forward, even though they fail, and sometimes sinful men wrapped in uh, vainglory. So too is Faustus. Is he a proto-tragic figure who lives bigger, bolder, larger, and crashes in a blaze of glory? Is he trying to push forward uh, his knowledge, his own knowledge, and humans' relation with the cosmos? Or is he the everyman who never meets good deeds and simply makes his way lonelily to death without those salvific comforts of the morality play? A play that is shaped around the life of its protagonist is becoming, in the theatre of the early 1590s, a tragedy. But Dr Faustus carries with it many vestiges of that morality tradition of everyman and other plays. The play never quite decides on its genre, we might say, and therefore it never quite decides how we are to interpret Faustus's final reckoning with the devils. Lente, lente, curite noctis equi. Faustus's Latin in the final speech is from the great classical poet of love, Ovid. The lover begs for longer in bed, runs slowly, slowly, horses of the night. Are we to think of Faustus's death then as a kind of consummation? 
appropriately. I haven't really got time to talk about it now. But you might want to think more about a kind of queer erotics between Faustus and Mephistopheles. The devil, after all, refuses Faustus a wife. Their conversations give this solipsistic play its only models of seduction. And at the end of the play, the epilogue observes moralistically, Cut is the branch that might have grown full straight, and Bernard is Apollo's laurel bough that sometime grew within this learned man. Faustus is gone. Regard his hellish fall, whose fiendful fortune may exhort the wise only to wonder at unlawful things, whose deepness doth entice such forward wits to practice more than heavenly power permits. Don't try this at home. Is that the play's real message? If the play's ending is overdetermined, Faustus's bargain is due, the end of the play is imminent, the devils are gathering, it's also perhaps anticlimactic. <coughs> the published playbook's final line, terminat hora diem, terminat author opus, the hour ends the day, the author ends his work, makes a rhetorical equivalence between writing and judgment. But what I've tried to suggest is that Dr. Faustus is finely balanced between orthodoxy and transgression, existing in between doctrines as a testament to the uncertainties and the paradoxes of its historical moment.